I supposed to be the franchise player, and we in here talking about practice. Having a 37-year-old in Cincinnati. And all the only thing else I got to say is, how about them Cowboys? Yeah! Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up to the layup. Oh, blocked by James. Episode 51 of the DNC Podcast, Monday edition. Dustin, how's Monday treating you so far? It is phenomenal, brother. I mean, great college football this weekend. Other than the migraine? Other than the migraine, but, you know, a little bit of water, a little bit of et cetera, and we're going to power through for the pod today, but... There hasn't been, I mean, I think maybe it's because the Big Ten is back, but it seems like college football has such an uplift um, than it did earlier in the season. I mean, we've had some great games. My boy Jim Harbaugh finding a way to lose another game against. Uh, Man, it's it's wild. I think that situation's weird for me because although he has tremendously underperformed, to, to say it slightly at Michigan, I don't know who else you bring in that is going to be able to replace him at a recruitment level because the crazy thing to me is Michigan still recruits really, really well at pretty much at yeah. pretty much every position besides the quarterback position. And that's what's been so confusing to me about Jim's tenure at Michigan is, you know, he had Andrew Luck at Stanford where I mean, that's a generational talent, so it's like how much of that was Andrew Luck, how much of that was Jim, right? But he's been kind of considered to be this quarterback, quote-unquote, guru head coach, um, but they've right. never been able to guy to get the guy at Michigan. And I think you sent me a stat that they're 1-6 right. against Ohio State and Michigan State, and so you're losing at, at home. home. Yeah, you're, crazy You're stat. losing the only two games that really matter, but I don't know who right. who, who else you bring in that's a quote-unquote better hire or get you more talents. What's your thoughts on that whole situation? No, so first first and foremost, I, I actually agree 100% with what you just said because I think it's easy in sports to see a coach, and if they're not performing, like for example right now for my Dallas Cowboys, I, I genuinely feel like we need to fire Mike McCarthy. It's not because we're losing. It's the way in which we're losing and the fact that – the stuff that came out of the locker room about the players saying that the coaches aren't prepared. They're not, they don't essentially know how to coach. That's a really bad look early on because typically the thing that, you know, a, a new head coach gets grace when they're establishing their culture, right? Because it takes time. So it's not something overnight that they're just going to be able to shift, especially when a head coach prior to that, Jason Garrett had been there for almost 10 years. So it's a complete culture shift. So typically you get some time to lay the groundwork there. But the fact that that stuff's coming out now, and the th- here's the thing, people were saying, you know, I think Zeke came out and a couple other guys were saying like that, there's nobody in this locker room saying stuff like that. Look, if that got out, somebody wanted that information to get out. That's just, that's just how and sports- why are you taking three weeks to now come and defend your head coach? Like if it wasn't an issue when ESPN and Yahoo Sports and all of these publications were leaking stuff out about how McCarthy lost a locker room, you would have said this weeks ago. Like exactly. Right after the DAC injury, you know? Exactly. And, and there's, there's prior fruit in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers. So this isn't something that's new with Mike McCarthy. So going back to Harbaugh, my thing is if you actually look at Michigan – since he's been there, which we go back to 2015, so he's been there for five years now, or almost five years, he's he hasn't won the big games, but he's been really consistent. And if you actually go prior to Jim Harbaugh, there were really up and down years at, at Michigan where it was like bad, where it was like five, six win seasons, and then you'd maybe sprinkle in a 10 win season somewhere in there, right? Whereas I feel like Harbaugh has been really consistent. And they've been ranked in the top 25 every year he's been there. And again, I know as a Mich- that's the tip, tough thing. If you're a Michigan fan, you expect to not just be in the top 25. You're not just like another top 25 school. You want to be competing for playoff spots every single season. So to your point of who else do you go get, I don't know. I, I do think the one missing piece that you alluded to, which is the quarterback, because I feel like college football and the way that it's built – if you don't have an elite quarterback or the way that Alabama's done things, which is really the anomaly because not everybody can be Nick Saban and replicate that, you have to have some level of an elite quarterback. And I'm saying elite at the college level, not necessarily he's going to be an elite NFL prospect because Alabama, they've they've had a lot of guys that were just random starters that, hey, game manage, don't turn the ball over. They had great running backs and great defense. So they were able to sustain and win national championships that way. But if you go look at most teams, they have a great starter. 
under center. And that's what Jim's lacked. And I don't know why, because if you go back to his time, you know, at, like you said, Stanford, yes, of course he had Andrew Luck and, and the majority of that's going to be on him and not on Harbaugh. But if you too then go to his time in the NFL with the, with the San Francisco 49ers, I mean, he really revitalized Alex Smith's career. He then turned Colin Kaepernick into whatever he was for a year and a half, two years. So that was the big thing coming to Michigan. It's like, this is his alma mater. He's going to put him back on the map because he can he can do the one thing that they've been looking for, and that was to develop and recruit great quarterbacks, and he just hasn't been able to do it. Yeah, for me, what I feel like is the biggest issue with the Michigan situation, that I feel like it's twofold. I feel like, one, maybe because of the historic brand of Michigan, right now we think Michigan is better than it is. I mean, you could make the same case for like USC and Texas where people are like, well, Texas is a powerhouse. Well, honestly, Texas hasn't been a powerhouse for the last 10 years. Neither has USC. Um, USC was Pete Carroll, right? Like that's a lot of what it was, right? And when you look at college football, to some extent, yes, there has been these historic brands that have been dominant for a certain time, but, you know, until Saban got to Alabama, Alabama wasn't Alabama, right? Florida was the best school in the SEC for five years, and then Urban Urban Meyer left, and Florida wasn't a powerhouse any longer. And so, so much of these dominant brands in college football It's not necessarily like the brand. There's very few brands. I don't know if there's any that, regardless of head coaches, are going to be dominant on their own. Because if you would have ever thought a brand that would just be dominant, it would be USC. Because you're in Southern California. It's a great place to live. You have five-star recruits everywhere. And they've gone through five or six head coaches to try to find the guy since Carroll left. And when you look at Michigan, I think why it looks like such a disappointment is because I think Harbaugh, because of the time he was at Stanford, it looked like he really overachieved because it's actually really hard to recruit at Stanford because you have to have a certain like grade point average to qualify. You can't just get any five-star athlete, right? It's really hard to get into school. And he was competing with Oregon and USC and all these other schools that to an extent had a recruiting advantage, right? Because of the GPA enrollment requirements, right? And then he goes to the 49ers and he looks really, really dominant. And he makes Alex Smith look better than he had ever looked at any point of his career, right? To your point, Colin Kaepernick was really polarizing for a few seasons, right? He really got the best from him his first two years. And so I think everyone thought, okay, this guy is almost like the precursor to, say, like a Sean McVay. He looked like the most innovative mind in football at the time. And then he goes to Michigan And right away, your thought is, all right, he's going to crush Urban Meyer. Like, he's the best coach in the conference. And we probably didn't give Urban the credit he deserved. But I think because we're expecting so much from Jim, it looks like such a disappointment. But to your point, when you actually look at the consistency over the last five years, he's been really solid. I just think at this point, our expectations for Michigan aren't really realistic. Yeah, 27 to 24 loss for the Wolverines against Michigan State. Tough one. Another another crazy game this weekend, Dustin, was Clemson versus Boston College. And we all know that Trevor Lawrence tested positive for COVID-19, so he didn't get the start. So they had their true freshman, DJ, uh, a Yuga Lile. I, I'll, I'll probably butcher that name, and I do apologize. But he was he's a five-star recruit from St. John Bosco out of California in our backyard. And he's a guy that was a stud in high school and came in obviously highly touted was obviously going to be the successor to Trevor Lawrence. And I'm, I'm sure they were hoping that wasn't going to be as soon as it has, as it is right now due to the whole COVID situation. And it's already been confirmed that Trevor's going to miss next week's game against Notre Dame. So what did you think about his performance? what did you think about Clemson and just, you know, the, the, the gaping hole of Trevor Lawrence and, and how, how much, of an impact he has not only just on the offense, but how much of an impact he has on that university and, and that squad. Cause that was a close game that they had to come back and win against, you know, I think Boston college has been a strong team this year, but they're not, they're not a team that if you're the number one ranked team in the country should be, you know, hanging around with. No, hundred percent. I think they were down, what was it? 28, seven or, or something like that in the second quarter. And um, they were lucky they were playing Boston college. Because the reality is it took Clemson a little bit of time to wake up. I think the biggest surprising part for me is 
I figured from an offensive standpoint, at least initially, they were going to play conservative, and they it, it might take them a little bit to score. But defensively, they didn't lose anybody on that side of the ball. And they get five-star recruits just like Alabama and LSU. That defensive line seems like it's getting three or four guys drafted every year, right? And the defense definitely came to play late. They got the late, the late safety at the end and really, you know, hunkered down in the second half and gave up zero points. Um but they're, they're happy that they got this fielder game because next week versus Notre Dame, although neither of us think Notre Dame is as good as people are, are putting them in the, the conversation for this week. The funny thing is they played Pitt two weeks ago and people were saying to take the under, right? And now all of a sudden, because they've won a few games, Notre Dame is getting touted like this title contender team, which I, I don't think they're there, but they definitely have a quarterback who's been there for over a year. He's been consistent. So it's, it's not going to be a give me game for Clemson, I think. For most people, the ACC was kind of a lock this year. Everyone assumed Clemson was just going to be the shoo-in, the number one seed. And um, I think they're going to be in for a tough game Saturday. I still think they have a chance. I think having the one starter under center is going to help them uh, this week. But uh, it definitely was, I think, surprising to me because even with Trevor Lawrence out, I figured they were going to roll this weekend. Yeah, 34-28 was the final in that one. And Ugalale, I he was 30 of 41 for 342 and two touchdowns. So, I mean, you couldn't ask for much more out of your true freshman first start in his co- collegiate career. So it looked like he played really well. Travis Etienne, 20 carries, 84 yards and a touchdown. Then he also had seven receptions for 140 and a touchdown. So the thing is, they're going to have to rely on Travis Etienne as they go into this Notre Dame game and their defense. So I think, I think they'll be fine. I, again, I don't think Notre Dame's necessarily a threat, but they're obviously a better team than Boston college. So, you know, they just can't come out flat and get down early and by a lot um, against Notre Dame. Cause it'll be tough, especially putting that on the shoulders of your freshmen, having to throw the football to try to get you back in that game. So that'll be an interesting uh, game to watch. I'm excited. And, uh, but an- another game this weekend, we had Oklahoma state number six, ranked Oklahoma State get upset by Texas and it's so weird to say like when a team gets upset by Texas because I think you you said something really great when we were talking about the Harbaugh uh, when we we're doing the Harbaugh segment which was people need to stop looking at Texas as the brand that they've been known as because they're just not right now and they really haven't been for probably the last decade like ever since Colt McCoy left they just have not been the same team and when you're losing they just lost I don't know if you saw this um, they lost the number one quarterback recruit in the country. And I remember when you showed me that, and that's what's so funny about like signing somewhere so early, like what your sophomore or junior year, because you hardly ever stay with that person because he comes out what in two years. Yeah. Is he a, is he a junior? Yeah. So it's like, I think it's so funny when people, um, choose a school, their sophomore or junior year, because you know, it's highly unlikely, um, that they're going to actually go to their senior year, but now, even to the Texas point, I think one of the funniest things to me about college football is with looking at every other sport and globalization and playing in these big markets being so important, It's I find it so ironic that the best, most dominant programs in college football right now are in South Carolina and Alabama. Like, we're trying to throw these big, quote-unquote, national brands for these big market cities like Texas, Right and USC and Michigan and we want that to be the face of college football so bad and you have little Alabama and you have Clemson South Carolina say nope we're getting kids to come here and play football and our structure our culture is enough you can kind of keep your name there's nothing right now that says Texas football than beating a ranked team and then coming back next week and losing to a non-ranked team I mean that's just kind of like where they're at it's Texas football and USC are are the two programs that have just been so hard for me to try to figure out because the inability to get talent in your backyard every single year, I just, I don't understand how it continues to happen because the players are there. You would think they'd want to go to your program, but college football starts and ends with recruiting. And for whatever reason, they just haven't been able to get it done over the past five to 10 years. Yeah, no, that, and that's that's been the frustrating thing if you're a Texas fan or a USC fan because the hotbeds of our country in terms of prospects are going to be Florida, California, and Texas. Those are like the three big ones. And the fact that two of those schools residing in two of those three states, meaning Texas is in Texas, of course, and then USC is in California, have not been able to recruit their five-star guys in their backyard. Uh, there's a guy, Garrett Wilson. He's from Texas. 
Texas wasn't able to land him. He's a five-star wide receiver. He goes to Ohio State. They're already talking about Quinn Ewers going. He's de- so he already decommitted from Texas, and they're saying the rumors are he's gonna he's gonna sign with Ohio State. It's like you're losing guys in your backyard, not even in the same region. They're going north. You know, they're they're if they're from the West Coast, they're going east. It's it's just super wild right now. Um, and I think what you said was super, was super good was that, you know, these, the schools we're talking about are in South Carolina. I mean, really where's, I mean, even North Carolina's recruited really well the last two years getting Mac Brown, you know? So that's going to be an interesting team to watch over the next two to three years. But yeah, the, the traditional powerhouses, I think we're like trying to force it on people. We're trying to, we're trying to force our hand because we want the brands to be relevant in college football and they're just not right now. And so, you know, Texas losing that game or winning that game 41, 34 in overtime against six ranked Oklahoma state. It's just crazy because, you know, a lot of people were thinking maybe Oklahoma state was going to get into the playoff and here they find themselves, you know, now probably outside looking in and Texas has been super inconsistent this year, almost lost to Texas tech, had to come back at the very end and win that wild game. You know, they lost to Oklahoma who Oklahoma's not as good as they have been in recent years. So um, just just super crazy. So one brand you don't, I don't think, have to push on anybody is Ohio State, right? They've only played two games this year, but they're 2-0, 38-25 to win over Penn State. Justin Fields is just getting better. Justin Fields, 28-34, 318, four touchdowns. He looks so good, man. I mean, I think the one thing about Ohio State that really scares me playing in the Big Ten is is I know their offense can put up points. I have no doubt about that. They can score with anybody. Their defense last year was really good, but it still wasn't enough. I think for me, that's still the biggest hurdle and the biggest question mark is defensively, are you able to match up with Alabama? Because the thing about Alabama is now they, they play offense, right? They've played offense the past three or four years but they also have really, really good defense. You look at Clemson. Clemson can score with anybody, but that defensive line is arguably the best in college football. And so I think that's going to be the biggest question mark for me with Ohio State playing these teams in the Big Ten that I don't really completely trust or think consistently they have the same playmakers on the outside like a team you would play in a playoff game like a Clemson or Alabama. Yeah, 100%. Justin Fields, to me, has – has definitely solidified himself as the number two pick in the NFL draft. He looks incredible. This team looks, their offense is just so explosive. Ryan Day's done a great job as their play caller. He's probably going to be a head coaching candidate in the NFL in the next couple of years. It's interesting because there was something I heard probably a couple years back. Urban Meyer, when he was still the head coach at Ohio State, was saying that he had told, I guess, the administration that, I mean, he knew he was going to be retiring pretty soon. And he said, hey, we have the next head coach. And he's on our staff and it's Ryan Day. And that, to me, when you get an endorsement from Urban Meyer, and people can say what they want about Urban, but he's won at every school he's been at. You go back to Utah. I mean, Utah was nobody back then. He had Alex Smith. He turned him into a Heisman candidate, ended up being the number one overall pick. They went to a a BCS Bowl. And then he goes to Florida. Your beloved Florida Gators wins a few natties with, with Tim Tebow. And then he goes to Ohio State and, you know, wins the first national championship when they switch the format to the college football playoff. So all of these, all of at every, it seems at every turn, every stop, he, he's been successful. So getting that endorsement's huge. And so you just have to tip your hat right now to Ryan Day and Ohio State. They look like a team that's 100% going to be in the national championship. So I think to your point, I would love to see Justin Fields go up against Trevor Lawrence in the national championship. Uh, So coming up on the podcast today, we are going to get into week eight of the NFL season. We're going to recap that. But before we do, we're going to talk a little bit about the Brooklyn Nets because Steve Nash was hired a a couple months back as the new head coach of the Nets. And slowly but surely, he's been putting together his staff. He brought over Amari Stoudemire, who, if you don't know, was his teammate in Phoenix when he really had his best stint of his career where he won two MVPs. Him and Stoudemire were elite on the pick and roll. And he also now has brought over recently, this is not breaking news, but it's really new news. He brought over his old head coach, Mike D'Antoni, who was just the former head coach of the Houston Rockets last season. What are your thoughts about this move? Do you feel like he's putting together a really good nucleus of guys or do you kind of feel like it's just a bunch of names on paper that really 
isn't going to manifest into wins, even though they have Kyrie and Katie, of course. But from just a coaching staff standpoint, do you feel like he's making the right moves? I think the Mike D'Antoni hire is absolutely phenomenal and mainly because you're getting so much coaching experience. I think one of the things Steve Kerr did really, really well, uh, besides joining a team that had Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson, which was an all-time great decision. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you needed um, to say that. <laughs> he did a really good job getting a coaching staff of other players who had coached before. So we had a very veteran bench, right? And I think from a young coach, there's a lot of guys, and Steve Nash doesn't see, seen this way, but who are very egocentric, right? And they want everything to be their way, right? So they hire a lot of yes men and they hire people who will be excited to coach under Steve Nash because what he did as a player. But I think Steve Nash said, hey, where were areas where I was successful? And one of the things you told me pre-show is like, dude, it looks like he's just getting a whole bunch of guys that think like him and see the game the way he does. And Mike D'Antoni's offense became famous under Steve Nash, right? And so I don't think they're going to run that offense to a T because it's not going to fit with Kyrie and KD, but Mike D'Antoni is a guy that understands the offensive side of the football. Right now, defensively, um, we're going to have to figure out what that team looks like, but if you're scoring 140 points a night, which it looks like they may be able to when you look at not only that bench, but you're having KD and Kyrie, it's going to be exciting. But I, I actually really like the move from Steve Nash because to me it shows awareness. And I think one of the things with the new head coach is how aware are you to your surroundings? I think he understands not only is the expectation from everybody in the media and in the basketball world, this team needs to at least make the Eastern Conference Finals this year. I think he realizes, additionally to this, I've never coached before. Now, I've had some involvement in the Canadian Basketball Association, and he's helped with their national teams. But it's different doing that than coaching two top 10 players in the NBA, a top three player in Kevin Durant and having the expectation of the world for you to be playing the Lakers next year in the finals. And so I love the move by Steve Nash. Um, we don't know how it's going to work out, but on paper it looks like he's trying to do – he's trying to check all the boxes to give him the best chance to be successful, and I commend him for that. Yeah, I'm going to double down on that. I, I think it's a great move, and, and the reason I think it's a great move is because – you're walking into a situation that is unknown to you. You've never been a head coach in the NBA. And so what he's doing is he's creating as comfortable of an environment as he possibly can. Stuff that's familiar to him. Amari Stoudemire, Mike D'Antoni, both of those guys were a part of the greatest run in his career as a player. He's got, those are two guys he knows, two guys he trusts. D'Antoni, is I mean Steve Nash might not ever be who he is if he doesn't play in that system. Of course, like we love. He was he good in Steve Dallas Nash with now, Dirk, like, but he definitely went to yeah. a whole other level in Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, he probably doesn't win those MVPs, right? Which I'm still oh, not 100 no. percent sure how he won those MVPs. Um, but he probably doesn't. <laughs> you know, that that was like the a like the air raid type offense in the NBA, right? And so so right, much of what right. he did, I think he's aware enough to say, "Hey, I wouldn't be the same guy um, if I wouldn't have had Mike D'Antoni," and so. Getting him here, there's some changes Kyrie and Kevin Durant are going to have to make to their game to be successful. And I think he's just saying, hey, can we get as many minds as possible to try to make the situation work? Yeah, and I think, too, when you have two guys like Kyrie and Katie, you don't have to do as much as a head coach because they're so supremely talented. And I think if they can do something that not only utilizes their skill set to the very best of their abilities, but maybe throwing some different wrinkles in there that people haven't seen from Kyrie and KD because neither of them have been in an offense like D'Antoni's. And to your point, I don't think they're necessarily going to you know, run the run and gun, but they are going to run some form of that on some level. They're going to institute some type of, um, of that offense, some aspect of it. So it's going to be really fun because I think that – I really think – I know this might sound crazy, but I think that Steve Nash is going to be really good for Kyrie because – Kyrie's already so naturally gifted and I'm, I'm kind of hoping that he's going to tighten some of the loose, you know, strings that are on Kyrie's game. And what I mean by that is not that he has, you know, these flaws that he needs fixed. Everybody has flaws, but I'm just saying in terms of his actual basketball game, but maybe tightening, you know, some of the turnovers or just little tweaks here and there that can help him be better on both ends of the floor. So I, I think Steve's going to be great for Kyrie as long as he's coachable. That's been my, always my biggest concern with Kyrie is he's not a coachable basketball player. And um, but I, I really I know this sounds super weird, but I feel like Amari that I feel like that's such a quiet addition because I feel like he's going to be able to relate to those guys 
on a level that maybe Steve won't. Or Mike D'Antoni. Are they just going to all take wine baths together? Hey, I wouldn't be surprised, man. Hopefully not together, but maybe they'll do some sort of... Separate, separate wine yeah, baths. Yeah, separate wine baths. I think, I think this offense real quick is going to be a lot more Phoenix Suns than Houston Rockets, where it's not going to be like the James Harden isolation, but it's going to be quick up and down. Can we score and get back? Because when you have KD and Kyrie, uh, I don't think many people can, can hang with you, but... Like you mentioned, I get into the pick of the day. So mine is kind of unique, um, and I I really want to get your thoughts on this because you know the 49ers are a team in a lot of people's mind. I know you pick Seattle to win the win the division, but I think most people expected the Niners, whether they win the division or not, they're probably going to be a wild card team. They're going to be a dominant team in the league for say the next three to five years with everything Kyle Shanahan's doing. The injuries aside, nobody was expecting them to go through. The, the catastrophic injuries they've gone through at this point of the season. To me, though, the biggest question mark and the thing I can't completely wrap my head around is what's going on with Jimmy G, right? It looked like he got hurt, I think it was, not last year, but the year before, right? Missed a whole year with the torn ACL. Yeah, he tore his ACL. The game op- the, yeah, it was the, yeah, it was the game opener. Um, he tore his ACL. That's what it was. Yeah. Two years, Two years ago. I think first the Vikings, right, on, on, a, on like a bootleg run, right? right? And then I think that year they win, what, three or four games. Next year, right, last year they had the historic run, uh, made it really, really far, obviously, and um, to the Super Bowl. Um, Should have won. But um, <laughs> he, you know, got a lot of success for that, even though they were more of a run-first team. He got so much success because they were such a step forward. When you look at this year, he's been kind of inconsistent, right? He gets benched in the fourth quarter of, of yesterday's game. At that point, it seemed like the benching more had to do with the fact that they were down like 24 points. And it looked like Kyle was like, hey, we're just going to go into the next week. But then in one quarter, you have Nick Moldens come in, go 18 of 25 for 238, pass for two touchdowns, have a touchdown scoring drive. And then Jimmy G finishes the game 11 of 16 for 84 yards and a pick against a Seattle defense that, yeah, they came to play yesterday. But as we saw when Nick Mullins came in, there are a lot of holes and openings in that defense that every quarterback to this point of the year has been able to attack. What do you think is going on with Jimmy G? Do you think it's the injury concerns where he's kind of been dealing with a high ankle sprain and he's just not healthy yet? Do you think he's the franchise quarterback? Or if you're Kyle Shanahan, are you looking at the situation like, I have a really good young roster. Maybe if I can move Jimmy G for, you know, a third or a fourth to say like a team back to New England or another team that's looking to get a franchise quarterback or um, someone can kind of be in the wait until we get that franchise quarterback. What do you do if if you're Kyle Shanahan in this 49ers organization? Well, look, I, I think first and foremost, the Nick Mullins thing, we saw him start couple weeks ago when Jimmy G was out and he looked atrocious. So he's been a guy that's come off the bench and played pretty well. Kind of reminds me of, of a poor man's Nick Foles. Like he seems to be really good in relief, but when he's a full-time starter, I think the year that he did tear his ACL was like him and CJ Beathard went back and forth. And I know Mullins put up some good stats that year. So he's not, he's not a horrible option to go to as a backup, but I know I'm a little bit higher on Jimmy G than, than you and, and maybe most people. I, again, I don't think he's an elite quarterback, but the one thing I would say that is a question mark and concern for him is his injury history. He seems to always get injured. Last year was his first year, of course, as a as a starter to finish an entire season. He hasn't been in the league that long. He was a backup for three years in New England behind Brady. So it's not like he's just been in the league for seven years and six out of the seven, he's been hurt. Um, but it's very evident that there's a pattern here that he is very brittle and can get hurt very easily. So that's a big concern for me because if you're my starting quarterback and I'm investing a lot of money in you and you're not on the field, then it really doesn't matter how good I think you are or can be. If you're not available to me, it's, it really doesn't matter. So I I don't necessarily think I'm at this point looking to move him. I, I think I give him one more year, but within that offense, look, if you go look at their record with, with Jimmy G and without Jimmy G, I mean, it's it's catastrophically different. And so there's a reason for that. It's not just because they run the ball and play great defense. Yes, that obviously obviously makes um, a huge impact. But but Jimmy G is a really good starting quarterback. I don't again, I don't think he's an elite level starter, but he's a really good quarterback, and he can make all the throws. He's mobile. He's he's really what you're looking for um, 
on that type of a team. Now, if you're New York, either the Jets or the Giants, Jimmy G's not the type of guy you're looking for because he's not somebody who's going to carry a franchise, put the team on his back. I think the issue is we want everyone to be Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and Aaron Rodgers, and Patrick Mahomes. And the reality is there's four or five of those guys. And so consistently, you're just not seeing – there's not that many people that are going to be dominant every single week or have one or two bad games. I mean, we see it with guys like, you know, Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson, who have had a whole bunch of injuries this year. And they're like, well, what do you want me to do? Like, I have all the talent in the world, but it's, it's just different. I think because we've seen guys like a Brady, right, or Rodgers be able to overcome pretty much everything, especially Aaron Rodgers, when you look at his past 10 years and the lack of yeah, weapons they've had around him. It's, it's really impressive. And so we're like, oh, well, that's what a franchise quarterback does. No, that's what Aaron Rodgers right. does because he's special. He's a generational talent. Exactly. He's going to go do- down probably top five, top ten all time. Yep. Everybody can want that, but not everybody can have it. And, like, although I don't think I'm as high on, as, on Jimmy G as you are, he's still a solid NFL starting quarterback they don't grow on trees, right. and it's better to have a guy like Jimmy G than what we saw the year before when he tore his ACL. Right, absolutely. So, no, that's a, that's a really, really great point, and I think that's that's what we've seen in the NFL. It's like, unless you're – everybody's trying to find the next Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Carson Wentz, but to your point, like those guys don't just like exist all the time. They're very rare. There's a reason why those guys get paid the level of money that they get paid and why they're revered and talked about so often – but you like Andrew Luck, the fact that they went from Peyton to Andrew Luck, like that never happens. Like it never happens. And you you squandered it by not protecting him and he retires at 29. So I just think like that's my thing with Dak. It's not that I don't think Dak is a really good player and a top 10 guy, but there's a huge difference between a top three guy and a top 10 guy, a massive difference. The, my issue with Dak was it's not that I'm not – I don't want him as the quarterback. It's not that I, I'm not okay with paying him. But you cannot pay a top 10 guy Patrick Mahomes money or Aaron Rodgers money or Russell Wilson money. You just cannot do that. It's not a wise business move as the owner of the team. So with the Jimmy G situation, look, they paid him early and had it worked out. You know, If they won the Super Bowl last year, you could say, hey, like all the other seasons that he got hurt are a wash because we got a Super Bowl out of the deal. And that's worth it. But the thing that you look at with Jimmy G now is he gets hurt. He hasn't, he's been inconsistent this year. And I do think a lot of that has to do with his injury because, you know, when you, when you sprain your right ankle, which is your plant foot as a quarterback, it makes it really, really hard to step into throws. So I'm not making a hundred percent of an excuse for him, but you have to factor that stuff in when you're playing the quarterback position. So I, I like Jimmy G. I don't think he's somebody they need to move on from just yet. I, I, I believe that if, if their whole team is, is healthy right now and he's healthy, I think we're having a different conversation about the Niners and Jimmy G. So getting into my pick of the day, I'm going to talk about Baker Mayfield again because um, I just feel like I need to. I feel like I've been harping on him. Came to play dangerous yesterday. <laughs> Man, I mean – he made that really good Raiders defense look dominant. I mean, what an absolute beast of a performance. So much so, he went 12 of 25, completed 48% of his passes for 122 yards. He didn't turn the ball over, which was, you know, which is a win for him. But here's my thing with Baker, and I said this last week. I'm I really genuinely going into 2018 when he got drafted number 1 overall by the Browns, I thought it was the right move. I thought he's very accurate. That's going to translate. That's the most important quality of a quarterback. You know, size to me is is very important, but he had been a three-year start at Oklahoma. Like this, he's he's never been taller than what he is. So I was like, okay, he he has played at this level. He knows how to find windows behind the offensive line. So I wasn't like overly concerned with that. And then his rookie year, he kind of burst onto the scene, played really well broke the rookie touchdown passing record and and didn't even start the whole season. And the last two years, or I guess year and a half, it's just been regression, like each week. And my thing is, if he was just consistent, like I don't need him to be Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson, 
but just give me some consistency against teams that are better than the Bengals. Like, just just be better. Just be consistent. You don't have to be elite. I'm not looking for 350 yards and four touchdowns every week. But, like, you can't throw for 122 yards. You cannot throw for 122 yards. And me consider you an elite-level starter or even just an average NFL starter because you have too much talent. Now, if this was the old Browns where there was no talent and it was absolutely a dumpster fire – then I'd 100% say, hey, give Baker some time. Like, he's in a really bad situation. But that's I can't say that for him anymore. You Like, Stefanski looks to be a really good head coach. I, I don't know how that's going to play out over time, but he looks to be a really good a good head coach. They've got talent he's everywhere. He's been so impressive. Yeah. I just want to give him credit for a little bit because I think a lot of people can look at that Cleveland situation and say, hey, you're coming in and you're inheriting all of this talent. Like, you should be successful. But there is something about going to a situation that has historically underperformed. And it seems like there's this almost negative stigma inside the building where there's nothing you can do to win. And the way that he's gotten the most out of his players, and even, you know, yes, Baker has been inconsistent, but to your point, like that's kind of who Baker is. And so for him to look at that team, most people take that job and they look at the weapons on the outside. And granted, you had Nick Chubb early in the year and you have Kareem Hunt, but when you have OBJ, you have Jarvis Landry, a lot of people in, in today's NFL are going to take that job and go, we're going to stretch the ball down the field vertically and we're going to go at people. And for him to take a step back and say, no, I'm going to do what I did in Minnesota. We're going to run the football. I'm going to let Baker make plays if he needs to, but I'm not going to put the whole game on his shoulders. I think that takes great awareness, and I've been so impressed with the job uh, that he's done at this part of the season. Yeah, and and this isn't just like a, a Baker bashing session. I'm just saying I would like to see more consistency from him, and I think a lot of the criticism that he receives, which you know early on I thought was a little bit unfair you know they're talking about the progressive commercials and the hulu commercials you know having more commercials than touchdown passes and things like that like guys guys for so long have you know rg3 went after a bunch of endorsements when he came into the league like that's this isn't new it was just a talking point for somebody on a, a talk show but i just that's all i'm looking for like just give me some consistency where i can be like hey like I still think he'll get one more year because he should. He deserves at least one more year in the system because nobody's going to be elite in the first year of the system. Look at Aaron Rodgers last year with with LaFleur. There were still some kinks that needed to work out, and they're still working some out. Um, but that's all I got to say. I just I hope Baker just – my thing is, again, I'm okay with you celebrating, but like be a man of your craft. Like Work on what you need to work on so that you can be better for your team and not beat the Bengals on a last second throw and like be dancing in the locker room like you won the Super Bowl. That that's where I think people perceive him and whether that's right or wrong, they perceive him in a negative light because of that. So I know a few weeks ago we brought on our week four contenders and pretenders. I think now when you look at week eight's wrapping up tonight um, with the Giants Bucks matchup you kind of know now who are the real contenders and who are the pretenders. I think a few of the teams we talked about earlier in that segment were teams like the Tennessee Titans, right? Or teams like the Cleveland Browns, the Seattle Seahawks, the Steelers. Some of them have shown, hey, no, we really are a contender, like the Steelers and the Seahawks. The Seahawks had you know, a, a tough loss last week versus the Cardinals and came back in division and throttled the 49ers from start to finish. You look at the Steelers, uh, Ravens matchup where I think that's kind of a trap game for the Steelers when you're going in at 6-0 and playing a division team like the Ravens who you know are going to kind of ground and pound you. Um, we'll get to Lamar's historic day in a little bit, uh, no pun intended, but <laughs> let's talk about the Tennessee Titans. Uh... Right? They're a team that so many people were high on this year. Neither of us really got the hype, right? I think Derrick Henry is an absolute beast, and I'll give that guy all of his credit, but they get another 100-yard game from him. It's actually – the first time in his career as a Tennessee Titan where he's ran for over 100 yards and they've lost a football game. That's a crazy stat yep. in this modern day of the NFL, but it just shows how one-dimensional they are. And, I mean, we saw Baker Mayfield light up Cincinnati right. twice this year and right. have five touchdowns last week. And so for Tennessee to kind of lay an egg against the Bengals, in my mind, it kind of shows me who they are. They're, they're an above-average football team that – 
has a shot at making the playoffs. It's, I think the the race between them and the Colts are gonna is gonna get tough down the stretch. I think the Colts have a much better defense than they do, and the Titans just can't get at a pass rusher. But what do you make of of Tennessee and then our our boy Burrow getting his win um, on Sunday? Yeah, I mean l- last week I I thought they were a pretender. I still do. I, I don't see them as a team that's gonna run the table to win a Super Bowl. Like they're obviously a playoff team, and they're a solid solid squad. And I think if you're a Tennessee Titans fan. You know, you have to be happy about that because, you know, historically it's not like you've been a dominant franchise year in and year out. So I feel like Mike Vrabel's done a really great job with their defense, with their culture. You know, it seems like Derrick Henry's the perfect piece for a Mike Vrabel team. And, you know, as you alluded to many times with Ryan Tannehill being, you know, maybe a game manager or or a little bit above that, you know, I think Dan Orlovsky said he was a, a top five quarterback in the NFL, which is just absolute blasphemy. But I don't I don't like the way that this team is constructed because they're not great defensively. They're they're good, but they're not great. And so typically when you're a team that's a run first team, you better be elite defensively, i.e. the 49ers last year. So that's my issue with this team. I don't think Ryan Tannehill is going to be able to carry them down the stretch. I, I really believe that um come playoff time. Look, I know that they made a run last year, they got to the AFC championship, but if we remember, I mean your beloved New England Patriots, you guys did lose to them at home, but that game was a lot closer than people even want to talk about. And the talent level comparison wasn't even close. So I, again, just, I still think they're a, a pretender and I'm always going to think that this year. So no giving, even with that saying like, I think the job Mike Vabral has done since he took over that spot, I think it's been tremendous. I think that's part of the reason I, I still consider them a pretender because I just, I don't think their quarterback is good enough, but the fact that Vrabel has been able to elevate this roster to this status, I think has been really impressive. I think a game we have to talk about is Baltimore-Pittsburgh. It's a huge matchup, especially in the division where the Ravens at this point were 5-1 and one going into this game. Steelers are 6-0, and oh, right? And so the person who wins this game is going to take a clear-cut lead at the division, especially if you're the Steelers now going up 7-0 and winning a division game. I knew it was going to be close, but can we talk a little bit about Lamar's performance? And it's not even the two interceptions. It's the fact that he's 13 for 28 for 208 yards. Like, he's completing 50% of his balls. And for me, I mean, that's the biggest, I think, red flag with Lamar is I get he's electric and he's exciting. 100%. We talk about quarterbacks all the time now that if you're not completing 65 to 70% of your balls, you're not an elite level starter. I mean, the knock on Cam Newton before he went to New England was this guy's historically completed about 60% of his passes. That doesn't get it done. Has the league changed on Cam, right? But with Lamar, I feel like he doesn't get the same level of criticism as your traditional franchise quarterback because he's so electric. And I'm not knocking his athletic ability and the way he can impact the game in multiple facets. But if you're my franchise quarterback, I need to consistently get a higher level from the passing game and and it just doesn't seem like it's clicking and I don't and I don't understand why nobody really wants to talk about it. Yeah, no, I, I love that because when we when we said it back earlier in the year before the season started that that defenses were gonna figure out Lamar that he wasn't gonna have we weren't talking like statistically like obviously he wasn't gonna put up the same numbers as he did last year. It was an anomaly year in my opinion. But I think people thought we were crazy. Like so many, so many major sports talk shows had him as a top three quarterback in the NFL. It was Mahomes, Russell, and Lamar Jackson. And I just thought it was very disrespectful when you look at the guys that are in the league, guys like Stafford, right? I know that nobody would think, well, Stafford's not a top three quarterback in the NFL. Well, Stafford's been doing it consistently for a, a much longer period of time. His fourth quarter comeback record is is absurd on a fran- on a team that's really been super inconsistent. He's never had a great running game. Defense has been bad. Dysfunctional franchise. I mean, he's literally been carrying that franchise for ten years. So there's just guys. Carson Wentz, another guy that I've defended a ton of times on this show. It's just really disrespectful because again, I feel like we live in an era now where it's like whatever is flashy and cool and is in front of our face. You know, the shiny object syndrome. We jump all over it. And I wasn't just trying to knock Lamar to be different. I was just saying, we've seen this before. Like this, if people are acting like we've never seen this before. I, to me, I would take Mike Vick over Lamar any day of the week. 
The only thing I would say Lamar's maybe a little bit better at than Vic is accuracy, maybe, but that to me would still be an argument. The thing with Vic was not talent. Vic didn't study the game, and he has said that publicly many times that he relied on his talent. It's the booby miles effect where you just go, I'm going to show up. I'm more talented than everybody else, and I'm just going to play backyard football. And that's honestly what he did. He did it at Virginia Tech, and then he did it in Atlanta. Had he actually worked and developed as a quarterback, Vic could have been all time. I mean, the guy's arm was ridiculous. Athletic ability. You can't say Lamar's a better athlete than Vic. I mean, if he is, it's by a really small margin. So my thing with Lamar is if he if he was not a runner, like there's no way you would be okay with your starting quarterback completing 50% of his passes. There's no way. So again, do I think that Baltimore's gonna move on from him after this year? No. But me personally, that this is the beginning of the end, in my opinion. I said he'd be out of the league as a starter, you know, in three to four years, not from now, but meaning like from basically this last year. Um, and I still think that's going to be true, but we'll have to see. I, I just, I don't see how you continue as a head coach and as an offensive coordinator, as a team, allow this to happen. Quick question. Is Cam Newton done in New England? Well, I, you know, I just went on a rant about how I was right about Lamar. I have to admit when I'm wrong. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about Cam Newton deserving an extension and that he was making elite level throws. And he was. But for whatever reason, after this COVID situation, he's looked abysmal. And the way Bill Belichick is, it's it's there's no tolerance for plays like this. There's no like playing. The thing with Bill is like you need to you can't be perfect all the time, but. Mis- making mistakes and turning the ball over gets under Bill's skin more than any coach, I think. And so the way that Cam's played the last two weeks, turning the ball over as much as he has, Bill's not happy about it. And I wouldn't be surprised if Stidham gets to start in, in the next couple of weeks or or Hoyer. And so um, I think Bill's seeing the writing on the wall. The season's over and it's time to move on. And so a lot of people were knocking Bill and saying, you know, being very critical of him signing Cam Newton to a one-year $500,000 deal, but looks pretty smart to me now. So, yeah, I think he's done. Do we want to touch on Cowboys-Eagles last night? Sure. We can, I mean, we could touch on it. I mean, we're, we're probably the worst team in football. So, Did you – you watched the game, I'm, I'm assuming, of right? Course. Um, of course. That fumble play was so weird. I, I, I've never seen something like that where you have a guy like in a pile and, and you could – I guess they were – Like Fletcher Cox had, had the ball. Possession. I just don't understand how you don't call him down. Like that's I don't just... understand how you don't call him down. And then you review it and you stay with it. Like that that was such a weird game. It looked like the Eagles were trying absolutely everything to lose that football game. Yeah. Look, because they have Carson, when, when Dak went down, it was like, okay, with Andy Dalton, I figured – if everybody can get back to full health, then maybe we have a shot to win the division. But I'm just telling you right now, I know Dak's the type of guy that wouldn't necessarily want it this way, but he has 100% benefited from this the most because it absolutely looks like and, – and look, I want to say this before I say what I'm about to say. Dak's a massive part of this team. Like his leadership ability, I think that's one of the biggest voids you're seeing is his leadership ability. ability. And – you know, the thing is for me, I've been critical of him at times, but it's only because of the simple fact that I don't think he deserves top three money. And that's just, it's just a fact. It's not because I don't think he's a good player or I don't like him or I don't want him as a starting quarterback. It's just being wise because if you do give him that type of money, he'll have nobody around him. So I think that watching this game as a fan, I went Dak right now. Again, I know he's not feeling this way because he's a really selfless player. He's going to benefit the most and he's going to get whatever he wants. It's just what's going to end up happening now because it's showing that there's a gaping hole in this team without him. So one quick question before before we wrap up the podcast. Say the Cowboys win three games this year. Do you think they re-sign Dak or do you think they try to make a play at one of these quarterbacks coming out, whether it be a Trevor Lawrence or a Justin Field saying, hey, if we make a play at this guy, we have Zeke under contract, we have Cooper, uh, we can figure out what we want to do with Gallup. We obviously... Um, have some holes on the defensive side of the ball, I can use that $40 million, maybe get rid of Jalen Smith, really solidify the linebacking core, get some help on the back end and a pass rusher. Do you think there's any way they say we're going to draft one of these guys? Or you think at this point, they're just going to say, hey, we're going to pay Dak because if he wasn't hurt, we had a good chance of winning, say, eight or nine games this year. I think if if you have 
you know, you're not going to get the number one pick, but if you somehow end up at, you know, number two and you can get Justin Fields, I think you have to seriously consider it because I think Justin Fields is elite and he is going to be an elite, be elite at the next level. But other than that, to me, if you, even if you had the number three pick and Fields goes number two, you know, either draft, in my opinion, I would draft a center, you know, to replace Kyle Frederick. I think that's one of the things that has gone overlooked this season is not having him has been a, a, a huge gaping hole for us. And of course, Tyron Smith, you know, seems to be hurt every year, but when he's healthy, he's obviously one of the best left tackles in football. You know, Zach Martin's in the lineup right now. He's been banked up this year, but for the most part, he's been pretty healthy his entire career, you know, and Leo Collins is out too. So, you know, we're missing, you know, if you count Frederick, I know he retired. So if you want to like exclude him from the group, but we're missing two, two stars on the offensive line that are, that are pro bowlers, you know? So I, I think that. If I'm if I'm the Cowboys or if I'm Jerry and I'm the GM, I'm looking at I'm looking at those two guys, Fields or or Lawrence. And if I can get one of those two, then I pull the trigger. But I think if not, you need to build around Dak. I get rid of Amari Cooper. I get rid of Jalen Smith. Those are two horrible contracts. Yeah, Michael Gallup and CeeDee Lamb. You still have Zeke. Maybe get rid of Zeke if you want to, but that's like now offloading three, three massive players. And I think for a quarterback, having having a, a consistent running game is important. And I, and I do think Zeke is consistent. Do I think Zeke is the most talented guy in the NFL? No, but he's super consistent at what he does. And a lot of people still, you know, it's funny how with Saquon, everybody's like, oh, Saquon's, you know, running into a brick wall every time he gets a handoff. But when it comes to Zeke, it's like everybody's just, you know, Zeke's getting 90 mil, so he should be overcoming everything. He should be superhuman. But our offensive line has been horrible this year. So you can't just put everything on Zeke. Um, so I, I think most importantly, I think you've got to get rid of Jalen Smith and Amari Cooper. So I think those would be on my, you know, at the top of my priority list over drafting a quarterback, because like I said, you can win with Dak, but unless you can get one of those two guys, cause I think they're both generational talents. Then of course you gotta, you gotta take one of those cause you'll have them on a rookie deal. So it's, it's, I told you last night, I feel like this is probably the worst team we've had in the last decade. So it's it's pretty brutal. I'm I'm there with you, man. Two and two and five in New England and and that's where we're at. Man, both of our teams, bottom feeders of the league. It's a minor, minor setback, major comeback. I already told you we're getting Danny Dimes this offseason. <laughs> uh, Julio my, and OBJ. Maybe we'll pair him with Julio and OBJ. So I'm hoping the uh the Patriots dynasty is just taking a, a little step back and, and we'll be back uh, stronger and better than ever. Yeah, Bill will probably get OBJ for a seventh. I was telling you, dude, I, I honestly could see Bill <laughs> getting a second for Danny Dimes and then like a sixth for Julio, and we can trade Harry because the guy has no idea how to play wide receiver. So we'll see what yeah. happens, man. Well, that's going to wrap things up for episode 51 of the DNC Podcast. Thank you for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the pod and listening every single week. We so appreciate the support. We hope you guys enjoy the content. And be sure to share it with everybody. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DNC Podcast. We'll see you guys Friday.